Welcome to the Battlefield Theologian Podcast, where we unpack different theological truths, doctrinal issues, apologetics questions, and items related to and concerning the faith. I'm your host, Ethan Jago. I'm the lead pastor at Five Bridges Church in Panama City Beach, and I am excited for today's episode. So if you're joining us for the first time, thank you for joining us, and I think you all are going to enjoy today's episode on the state of theology. If you're not familiar with this, this is a study that Ligonier Ministries does um, every year, and they ask Christians relevant questions uh, concerning the faith, theology, and doctrine. And this year's one, I got notification that it just came out today, and so I'm doing this to kind of review some of the findings with you. And I am wish I could say I was shocked at some of the statistics concerning this. And it's interesting because this is something that I've been very passionate about recently, uh, teaching different classes and courses. And one I actually finished up this summer is the holiness of God and understanding his attributes. And looking at the state of theology for 2022, almost all of these major ones are concerning with God, who he is in his attributes. So when we're talking about God, a lot of individuals don't understand that there's the doctrine of God and understanding who our creator is and his attributes. Many people are very familiar with his omnipresence, omnipotence, uh, you know, his all power, all knowing. And that's about the exhaustive uh, list that they have. And they also, God is all love and everything else. But there's a lot of other ones that people fail to realize. And what we need to understand as Christians is when we don't have an accurate picture of who God is and his holiness. There's a kind of a snowball effect that moves us uh, or the theological needle towards a more liberal self-centered view of Christianity and God himself. That is if God is somehow serving us, that he has created us because he needed us. Uh, he was lonely without us. And when we view God, a lot of theologians have said that we've domesticated God. We have made God in our own image, which is very similar to what happened in Exodus 32 when the children of Israel decided to make that golden calf because they wanted something visibly to see, uh, to kind of be a representation of God, of Yahweh. And we in the modern evangelical world, we have been doing this. Uh, I believe this has been plaguing us through the lens of traditionalism that started since the second great awakening and that we are on this side of history now looking back. And I personally believe that people are tired of that. People are tired of viewing Christianity through the lens of traditionalism and not allowing scripture be to be the primary driving force in how we understand scripture and it's scripture alone. And just this past weekend, we had a uh, young adults conference called Oxano, and the theme was Sola Scriptura. And I was basically making the case that what Luther did in 1517, uh, attacking the Roman Catholic Church for having a higher view of tradition to be superior to scripture, if not equal to scripture, and kind of the other traditionalist uh, approaches to Christianity that had overtaken the true biblical interpretation of who God is. How is it that one becomes saved and how can we stand before the presence of God? I believe that that is also very prevalent right now in America, where we have been raised a certain way. We believe a certain things. And if you ask people, why do you think this? Why do you believe this? 
Uh, what I have seen is typically they say, oh, well, that's just how I was raised or that's what we were taught in my church. And I would like to say that every church is teaching pure doctrine and using scripture as the lens, but sadly, that's just not the case. And what I was talking about is that what if you have a poor, wrong, or lowered view of who God is? And if you have a lower view of who God is, then this is going to skew a lot of how you have uh, or how you view the world around you. So that's kind of what has been. I believe plaguing the church and I believe that the state of theology identifies this. So in statement number four of statement uh, of the state of theology, so how this works is they pull U.S. adults and then they also pull, and I'm going to put this in air quotations, U.S. evangelicals, right? So here's U.S. adults, meaning just U.S. adults for who they pull. And this was the question. And so typically they say, here's the statement and we need you to say whether you agree or disagree or strongly agree or strongly disagree. Here's a statement. Ready? God learns and adapts to different circumstances. So think about this. This question is imposing that God is learning continually in a state or process of learning, or he adapts to different circumstances that is occurring here on earth. So I'll say this again. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. What percentage do you think as you're driving or listening, what percentage do you think agreed or disagreed? This is just us adults. All right. Enough pause. 51% of U.S. adults agree, affirming that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 32% of U.S. adults disagree. Interesting. Now they ask that same question to U.S. evangelicals. Same question. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 48% agree that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. That is appalling to me. So let's unpack this statement and the theological implications on why this is a big deal. God learns and adapts to different situations. If you're not familiar with one of the characteristics of God or his attributes is the doctrine of impassibility. Okay, the doctrine of impassibility. The doctrine of impassibility on the attribute of God is stating that God does not change. God is consistent. God is constant. He never changes. And the scripture to support this, because there's theological, not even just theological, there's logical implications behind if God does in fact change. Let me give you some text. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. And also the glory of Israel, this is talking about Yahweh, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. So when you look at that word regret in 1 Samuel, what this is talking about is the ability to be sorry, to console oneself, to repent, or to be comforted. And so this is talking about um, that God is not having emotions that he is not dictated by or affected with that of creation. So this is going against the latter portion of of that statement that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Because if he adapted to a different circumstance, if he adapted to something that we have done, if he's adapting to something that we are, then God is undergoing some form of emotional change, but he is not a God of emotions or he's not a God that is emotional. He is a God that is immutable. 
So we see that his impassibility is taken into account here. And not just his impassibility, but God's immutability. So when you're thinking of his immutability, that God does not change, this, again, like even without unpacking this more, this against, this goes directly against the statement that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, With God there is no variation or shadow due to change. God never changes. Because let's think about this. If in the Old Testament, God gave us covenants, which he did, if he changes the conditional nature of those covenants, then can we have any sort of promise or assurance that what he said then is still uh, working now? Or when Jesus died on the cross, if God is using the atonement of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that that is in fact sufficient for salvation, could God change the terms and conditions of that sacrifice? Well, if God changes, then that's absolutely the case. And if that's the case, then there means that there could be no eternal security. If there's no eternal security, then we are continually living our lives in a perpetual state of unknowingness, which makes Christianity no different uh, than religions like Islam. That makes it seem as if you know, if you look at, you know, Muslims, they, they don't know if they're going to inherit eternal salvation or inter- eternal life, excuse me, until they get up into paradise and then which Allah can affirm or disaffirm. So you're constantly living in the state of unknowingness. So when you're thinking about God learns and adapts to different circumstances, this is also talking and asserting or even suggesting that what we do somehow affects God then if what we do here on this earth affects God, then God is not a state of pure act. Then he is not the infinite eternal God. Because if I do something that affects God, that again, that goes directly against his impassibility because now he will undergo some form of emotional change. But if God is pure act, meaning he is pure love, he is pure wisdom, he is pure grace, and I do something that affects that, That is no longer the case. Therefore, now God ceases to be God. Because if you think about who God is, I mean, he is the most greatest, most powerful being that you can imagine. But if I can do something that affects him, I somehow now can change him. Therefore, that means that God is contingent upon something other than himself, which is getting into another attribute. But we can uh, talk about that. Uh, here in a second, but I want to go over a few more of these statements to uh, unpack. You know what? You know, I'm just going to go ahead and jump into it. So if if God is contingent on something or someone else, this is known as the doctrine or the attribute of aseity. The aseity means that God is self-existent. I am that I am, says God. So if God is self-existent, he doesn't need anyone or anything for his existence. You know, the way I I like to think about this is, you know, kids are often asking lots of questions like, well, who made this? Who made that? And I love to use the the law of cause and effect for every cause there is an effect. Well, if you use that cause and effect, eventually you trace that back to the first cause. For instance, uh, I like to explain to my kids using this is like, you see the grass. Well, where did the grass come from? Oh, the grass comes from a seed. Okay, well, where did that seed come from? Well, that came from some other form of grass. And then you kind of trace that back. Well, where did the very first grass seed come from? Well, it either came up by chance or it was uniquely 
designed for becoming eventual grass. So we eventually get back to a first cause. And that first cause has to be a cause necessary and a necessity of itself. And that first cause is God. Especially too, when you're talking about, well, how did the earth come into being? You know, we just started homeschooling our kids and my wife showed this awesome, uh, it was this evolution video because we like to present our children with different worldviews. And the video is talking about, well, the big bang happened. Now we're not sure where the material came from or how the big bang came up to being. So we're not really sure about any of this. And my kids started laughing and my kids were like, how can we just be basing faith off of nothingness if there is actually an answer for this? Because the kids in their minds were already using the law of cause and effect. Nothing comes out of nothing. We all know that. So if the universe came out of nothing, then that's just silly. But the universe had to come out of something. Therefore, the universe is an effect. There had to have been an antecedent clause or cause, excuse me. So using the law of cause and effect, we can get back to the necessity of there being a first cause. And, you know, in Exodus 3.14, I already said this is this is God speaking to Moses. And he says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people. I am has sent me to you. And then in Job 41.11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. This is God saying to Job, you don't owe me anything or you can't do anything for me. I don't need you. You didn't, you don't repay me unless I ask you to repay me, but that is not me being contingent upon you. And God says again in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. And then in Romans eleven thirty-five, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. And I think this is one of my favorite verses in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 25, uh, attesting to the self-existence or the aseity of God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I mean, I could continue on. I'll give you one more, I guess. John chapter 5, verse 26 for the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So when you think about the ascetic of God, the self-existence of God, that he exists necessarily, this is talking about the pure act. There is nothing outside of God. God is not dependent on anything outside of himself. He has always existed. He has no beginning and no end. He is the unmoved mover, the first cause, and everything is a contingent on him. He is not contingent on anything else. So this statement here, guys, when you're, <laughs> when you're thinking about the change of God, that God could potentially change, and when you're surveying U.S. evangelicals and the statement, God learns and adapts to different circumstances, and 48% agree, that's disgusting. That is unacceptable. And what this is telling me is that I, I, I blame Christians, but ultimately, I'm blaming the pastors of these churches that are creating these type of quote-unquote evangelicals. Because let me just say this. If you consider yourself an evangelical and you believe that Jesus, or excuse me, that God changes, then I don't think that you're actually an evangelical. Because if God changes, the implications and ramifications of that belief system is 
it's a snowball effect that is just going to compound and compound and compound that is going to turn into something completely other than the true God of the universe, the God of the Bible. And so we've got to use the Bible to define who God is and how he has revealed himself through the inspired word of God and not our opinions and our traditionalism that has affected a low view of God and a wrong view of God. And what's interesting is the scriptures talk about this, is that if we have created another God, or if we have added to this, we are to be accursed. And so we need to be very cautious with what we teach and how we teach others about God. You know, it's very interesting, even in the Old Testament, you know, they wouldn't say Yahweh wasn't used with the different letters and everything because they didn't feel that they were able to fully say the name because it was such a holy name. But now we take that name in vain and it's just, it's abhorrent. So if this interests you, this is statement number four on the state of theology. All right, let's move into another one. Oh, this is interesting. Statement number 15, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Let me say that again. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, meaning that when you are born, you are born in a, I'll go as far as to say this, even though they may not be implying this, you're born into a state of perfection, right? So I'm assuming the worldview of some of these people who would agree with this would say, yes, you're born in a perfect state until you sin. And then once you sin, now you are now sinful. All right. So here's the, here's the findings guys. Ready? So the statement number 15, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, us adults, 71% agree that everyone is born innocent and only 21% disagree. Okay. Guys, this is even more abhorrent here. U.S. evangelicals, okay? U.S. evangelicals. This statement, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 65% of U.S. evangelicals agree with that statement. Just think about that. 65% of evangelicals agree that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Now, this is just mind-blowing here because this is <laughs> this is going against the teaching of and the doctrine of original sin all the way back in Genesis, where we have Adam and Eve sinned, born uh, in a state of not perfection, but they were not born in a state of sin. They sinned. They were the figure representative heads of all of mankind. And they sinned. Therefore, we have now all also inherited sin. We are all now born with inherited sin. And, you know, when you don't understand sin, and if you don't think that you are sinful based on birth, then what is your need to actually have a need? Or maybe someone is telling you you have the need of a savior. But if you're not born into sin, man, then I could actually technically live a perfect life and not have a need for a savior. Well, is that possible? Could someone be born and not sin their whole life and then still inherit eternal life? I mean, that's a question I would love to ask someone who answered, yes, I agree that we we're born perfect. We we're born innocent. But the scriptures, again, teach directly against this. But why why is the scriptures not consulted? If if the scriptures were consulted, I mean, here's an answer to both of these, these just these two statements. If people actually knew the Bible, they would not be answering. Whether they believed it or not, they would just know what an answer would be, right? They would know that, no, God does not undergo change. And they would also know, no, we know that no one 
is born innocent. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we are all sinned, right? I mean, that's Romans 3.23. We understand that. Like there's no there's no one that is righteous. There's no not one. Because if you do believe that you could be born into a state of innocence, then what you're saying with that is you are born into a type of state of perfection with the ability to sin or not to sin, which is not the case. We know that we're not born into a state of neutrality, right? We're not born into a state of, well, we're not sure uh, if we could sin or not sin. Well, 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But here's the good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. I just, I mean, I think you guys all kind of see the significance of this statement. If you're born innocent, I mean, truly what this is, is depending on the individual, this is a type of plagianism or even semi-plagianism where, you you know, you're born with the ability or the state of making that righteous conscious decision um, of choosing salvation. But this goes against every type of biblical teaching that we find throughout scripture. But doesn't surprise me, though, because people are not actually reading the scriptures and allowing scriptures to be the filter in the lens. All right, let's move on to the next one here. Oh, this is about the Bible here. All right, let me see this. <laughs> the Bible, this is statement number 16. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful account of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. Uh, in this uh, report here, they show the trend uh, that they did in 2014, 16, 18, 20, and 22. Okay, so here's a U.S. adult findings. So the statement is basically the Bible is like a good writing, but it's not literally true. In 2014, 41% agreed. In 2016, 44% agreed. In 2018, 47% agreed. 2020, 48% agreed. In 2022, 53% agreed. Do you not see this rising trend of people having a lower and lower view of scripture and that it actually is true? Now, that's very interesting. Now, it doesn't actually tell us what the U.S. evangelicals are saying, and I'm honestly kind of glad it didn't because I'd be shocked as to what U.S. evangelicals believe about this. But this is just interesting because... This is, again, attacking the doctrine of Scripture. This is showing the misprioritization of the view of the authority of Scripture, and not just the view, but the infallibility of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, and, you know, and this is something that we as Christians, we've got to be strong on. We've got to know what the Bible says. We've got to know what it says, uh, what it means, and be able to accurately articulate that to others for those who ask for the reason for the hope that is within us, you know, first Peter three fifteen, but we don't. And a lot of us think that it's just a good self-help book, but it is the inspired word of God. And the Bible attests to this. And we have so many other sources attesting to the validity and not just the validity, but the reliability of scripture. So that's just a few statements I wanted to unpack for you guys. Uh, I hope you're just as well, Probably you're not as shocked uh, because this really is nothing new. We've seen this trend happening, but what we need to be doing as pastors and as Christians and as ministry leaders 
is to be teaching the whole counsel of God to be accurately handling the word of truth. Like Hebrews 4.12 says, this living word, it's active. It's living. The Bible is active and living. So let's teach it. We don't need our opinions and you know perspectives. We need to just be able to teach and articulate what the word of God says. Well, I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. Uh, I'm excited for some future episodes. I have some guests that will be coming on the podcast with me. And if you want to hear uh, anything in specifics and you have inquiries, uh, please drop me a message here, comment, uh, visit the website, ethanjago.com. I have more articles up there, uh, or you can even hit me up on the Instagram, ethanjago as well. But I hope you guys have a great day. I uh, hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you are interested in looking at all of the different statements, because there's several different statements in here, you just go to thestateoftheology.com, uh, put out by Ligonier Ministries, and you will see this. There's a lot of great uh, resources on Ligonier as well. And you can even look at the different data explorer where they can show you all of the different statistics and everything else. Well, guys, again, thank you so much for joining. I'm Ethan Jago, and this is the Battlefield Podcast. Battlefield Theologian Podcast. You think I'd be able to say my own podcast name right? This is Battlefield Theologian Podcast, and I will catch you guys next time.